Hey, welcome to Church in the North, a podcast by ministry leaders and for ministry leaders. I'm your host, Rob Chartrand, Program Coordinator for Christian Ministry at Briarcrest College. And I'm joined by my co-hosts, uh, Jeff Dresser, Assistant Professor of Worship Arts. Say hello. Hey, Rob. And of course, Dan Goddard, Lead Pastor of Victory Church in Moose Jaw. Say hi, Dan. Hello, everybody. All right. Hey, uh, we are back in studio here in Cairnport, Saskatchewan, and uh, I got some things to talk about. First of all, did you know, uh, guys, that uh, just this last Saturday, we had what was called the Autumn Equinox. Have you heard of that before? Mm-hmm. The Autumnal Equinox. <laughs> oh, ooh, look at you speaking all Latin-y like, <laughs> yeah. and stuff. Okay. That's because I have a student named Autumn, and I made an Autumnal Equinox joke with her that did not land. Wow. So you are very wise in the ways of autumn equinoxes, equinox, equinox, something like that. Okay. Well, hey, it's autumn season. And, uh, you know, Dan, I heard you guys just had your fall kickoff this last weekend. How'd that go? We did. Kicked off the season. It went great. Yeah. It's a good excuse for having a just a big fun Sunday, right? And inviting people out. And uh, so now, now we've launched the season. And away we go. That's right. Yeah, you're you're rolling into the new sermon series. I'm sure a lot of people are. Um, and then Thanksgiving is going to hit us, and before we know it, we are going to be into Christmas season. That mm-hmm. uh, that time of Advent and that whole month mm-hmm. of planning and preparation. Um, yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I, I always found uh, that if I wasn't planning Christmas by now, or I didn't have Christmas planned by now. I was going to be in deep trouble by the time it showed up. Uh, do you guys, do you guys have a strategy that you've used for uh, kind of planning Christmas? When do you, when do you start planning Christmas, Jeff? What, uh, what have you guys done in the past? Well, at, at a former church that I was the worship pastor at, uh, that church did huge Christmas productions, and so our rhythm would be right after Easter. I would have to have the, all the big decisions made wow. before summer hit, because when summer hits, everyone is off at the cottage and away, and it's hard to make any decisions done. And then when the fall comes, it's it's too late if you're trying to do uh, you know these big productions. So, so anyway, so I'm glad that, that my current church does not do huge <laughs> Broadway musicals uh, during the Christmas season, so that uh, it doesn't become a year-round thing. People flying on strings and uh, oh, th- this church that I was at—not while I was there—but they did have they had acrobats flying. They had someone ski from the balcony down to the wow. to the stage. So yeah, they were they were quite the <laughs> yeah. quite the productions. I just. I don't even know how they got all that snow into the auditorium. How do they do that? Like, a, oh, they. I mean, I have I have multiple stories about snow machines. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, all right. So when you say when you say planning, like you mean you you got to kind of have the theme and the script by Easter, or you're like everyone's recruited. Like what's... for me, the big thing was the the major. The major players, like if we we're doing a play or a music, you know, the director and the whoever's going to write the script, who's going to build the set. The sets were a big thing. Wow. We have to have those people committed so that when they're making their plans, you know, through the summer, that the, they understand that they've committed to this. And, and then, I mean, the planning process would be sort of iterative. And as we get closer, we're getting down into more details. Um, but those, the big decisions of, you know, the theme, sort of the main set design, mm. 
and the you know the major volunteers who were going to be involved that had to all be settled before before everyone disappeared over the summer wow i I can just imagine like all the creatives and worship arts people listening to this right now are breaking out in a sweat (laughs) remembering what's coming (laughs) so so obviously you guys are 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 working in the same church together so what do you do for christmas not nearly that complex okay so but we we do feel the pressure the same way right it's just different times and different things so it's actually right about now that we start feeling the pressure to um, have our schedule nailed down like you know because Christmas always lands on a different day and Christmas Eve and all of these different things so you're working through that trying to figure out which how many services are we doing and what this year Christmas Eve is a Sunday this year, so That's we've right, got 24. Yeah, some so decisions to make about that schedule. That's a big decision. Like right. I, I was just uh, speaking with someone the other day about our church, and I'm like, I wonder, wonder what they're going to do. Because yeah. I mean, I'm not in charge anymore, so I, I don't know what the decision will be. But are you guys going to keep? Uh, are you going to do a Sunday morning and Sunday evening, or are you just going to say, let's just do it all on one day, kind of thing, like one service? I assume we will do a uh, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm putting you on the that's, spot uh, here. <laughs> no, we, we've, yeah. we've pretty much landed on that, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's where it's going to land. Um, we're pretty pretty determined, no matter what the situation, that there are people in our community who would love a service on a Sunday morning, okay. uh, no matter what day of the year it is or what yeah, the issue yeah. is. So uh, we've never we've never not done one just for the sake yeah. of those folks who, who might want it. It... it um, yeah, it's more more motivated around sort of a heart for those who, who feel lonely or feel this or that yeah, yeah. Uh, at a given time. So that's always kept us down that path. But it's always a debate and always a discussion, and there's always lots of uh, yeah. heated reasons why you can do pros and cons. And yeah. so we do the schedule piece, and then and then of course um, we also have to think about you know what series and um, yeah what are the themes of these services going to be and what special elements and all of that. So yeah. Does, do you guys do anything added on to the Christmas Eve gathering? Like do you like have special events or anything tied to them? No, hot chocolate and various things. Try to make it something yeah. something special. But Yeah, I think typically families want to get home. I think um, not that everyone in your church is in a family, but I mean, there's people got other plans and stuff. And it's Yeah, yeah we do the candlelight piece. That yeah. sort of gives... Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah the church uh, I, I previously led, we did candlelight Christmas Eve service. And, uh, yeah. and then we did multiple services because, I mean, we just had a lot of people, but... Right. We actually hired a sleigh ride company to come in, yeah, horse-drawn yeah. sleighs, and yep. then we had winter events in between the, the services. So, like, we did an afternoon one and then an early evening one. Yep. And so it was like a family event. Petting zoo in our gym. Yep. I, oh, I, I spent one late night, uh, Christmas Eve, cleaning up after that petting zoo because <laughs> I didn't want all my all my staff had young families. And I'm like, uh, guys, you just go home, and, and no one's around. So I was mopping that floor with the smell of animal uh, dung memories. floating Good in the deal. air. <laughs> Wow. But it was worth it. It was it was it was totally worth it. Um, anyway, so uh, you know, pastors, uh, we get a lot of ideas for Christmas Eve. Like, where, where do you guys where do you go to for um, Christmas Eve ideas? Do you just kind of do the same thing, or is it you know what what do you guys do? Yeah, Wait, I, I mean, I honestly think Christmas Eve is such a unique once a year thing that for us, uh, we we don't have to come up with something totally different right you know the message yeah. is pretty similar yeah yeah uh, the carols are carols you yeah. know um, what people are looking for is something traditional usually mm. so we do try to come up with some special element or some special you know something that's that makes it uh uh fun for people to you know something to talk about after be like oh that that musical yeah. piece or that piece was special but but in general we're not 
going uh, super crazy to come up with something totally creative and out of the box. Jeff, do you guys like draw on certain sources for creative elements during Christmas Eve? I mean, for me, not so much during Christmas Eve because I think people do want something traditional. Right. And right. Uh, when you, you know, let's do a crazy jazz arrangement of a Christmas carol. Uh, my experience is that just makes people mad because <laughs> they can almost sing along, but yeah, not, right. not quite. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so for those, I mean, at my previous church that did huge, big productions, we still kept Christmas Eve pretty traditional, mm. uh, and, and more of the creative elements would go during the, there'd be a Christmas musical, or some of the Sundays during December, right. we might do uh, more creative elements. And, and the other piece is sort of managing the the energy and the availability of your volunteers. Yeah. So you, uh, you know, people are so busy that time of year. If you're doing something really creative on Christmas Eve that requires a week worth of rehearsals, uh, that's going to be a tough sell for your for your volunteers. I mean, it's tough enough just getting volunteers who will, uh, who are willing to serve for multiple services on Christmas Eve when there's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, usually if they're in a family, they've got family events and other things that uh, that yeah. they want to be doing. Yeah. Yeah, my my uh, daughter works at a um, a very large church in Edmonton, and they do seven Christmas Eve services. Yeah, like nice. it's just a, all day long; it's full. Like yeah. and really excellent quality. They used to do a musical. They canceled doing the Christmas musical idea, like like your church, because they just thought it wasn't actually re- you know getting the results that all the effort they put into it and all the money they put into it. So they just said, let's just make Christmas Eve special. And so seven, seven Christmas yeah, Eve, and that's her pretty husband intense. isn't. A lead guitarist he plays in all of them and last year she was the host in all of them so basically all day she's there and right and for every service is up speaking so <laughs> that that's a commitment for for christmas it is. Yeah, yeah yeah so um you, know, you visit other churches i mean i know i do um i try to uh, get around to visit other churches especially in my role here at briarcrest um yeah as a pastor, I, I always found it hard sitting in other services because, like, I find myself either I'm, I'm critiquing it or I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Where's my, you know, where's my pen and paper? And, you know, I want to write it down and all that stuff. You guys, you guys find it difficult um, entering in or do you have, like, strategies you have that you just enter right in and you just don't have that struggle maybe i'm maybe i'm maybe i'm the only one here you know uh but some of the people some of my listeners i, I know i'm reading your mail right now um, yeah yeah but uh yeah how about you Dan? i mean i'm a both and guy so okay. i i definitely i love going to visit other churches partly because it's just fun to be there and not be in charge or have yeah, have responsibilities yeah. so it's just nice you know you can worship you can yeah. listen engage and that kind of thing and being a stranger a little bit is nice too like not feeling the pressure of those those pieces yeah um but then i also love cleaning everything i can so i mean i'm there with the camera and stealing every brochure and ah. walking through every nook and cranny i've gotten kicked out of so many places in churches because i'm <laughs> I'm touring it, you know, and, yeah, and they're yeah. like, what are you doing here? I'm a like, strange well, man in the basement I'm, with a camera. I'm a pastor, really, yeah. you know, and, uh, but yeah, so I, I'm sort of a no apologies, uh, both and enjoyer of, of checking out other churches. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you have that challenge, Jeff? Uh, yeah, definitely. And the, uh, I mean, I dealt with performance anxiety earlier on in, in my 
uh, career. And uh, in reading through that, there's this sort of inner narrative that, that, that talks to yourself, that can say negative things to yourself when you're trying to perform. And it's the same discipline and sort of shutting that down and, and being in the moment mm-hmm. that I, I need to go through that when I'm at like another church. And if I just want to be present in the worship service, I, I really have to, <laughs> uh, you know, make that choice and then work on keeping that inner voice silent because yeah, I'll be like that. The B string on that guitar is out of tune <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, uh, the, these guys are speeding up in the bridge here and I will be critiquing that. And, and it's, I mean, I can do the same thing at my church. It's not like our church is perfect. There are lots of things yeah. that, uh, that you can notice there that could be improved, but it's, you know, it's ultimately me that's missing out on an opportunity to, to enter into worship and to be ministered to. And, and I tell myself that afterwards mm-hmm. I can reflect back and sort of glean those Right. Th- those things, yeah. and and in teaching, uh, in teaching, you know, worship leadership here, uh, like when we do workshops in classes where someone's leading a, a song, say for instance, I, I tell the students like let's let's enter into this as a you know as a worship service, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then later when it's Achieve over, it. yeah. we'll reflect back on it rather than trying to, I'm going to try to worship and sort of academically uh, criticize and analyze what's happening. It's, it's, it's just too hard to do <laughs> both of those things totally, at the same time. Totally. Yeah. It's like teaching homiletics class. Same thing when the students are listening to the sermons, allow the sermon, first of all, to speak to you right. and then you can critique it. But it's, it is, it is challenging. It is challenging. Um, and, and I mean, for us as pastors too, every Sunday, it's a challenge, right? Yeah. Cause you want to engage in the service and in every aspect, yeah. Um, but at the same time, you're evaluating. You know, is this working? And not yeah, working? you're reading the crowd. You're yep. like, you know, what's it going to be like when I get up there? You're thinking about your message a little yep. bit. Your segues, and yeah, it's yep. it's a challenge. Um, I'm I'm a homiletics prof. Um, I also mark sermons for one of our alliance districts, right? Yep. So I'm I'm reading and listening to sermons all the time, putting them all through a rubric, giving them feedback. Right. Yeah. So it's it's really hard. Like it really is hard for me to sit through a sermon without right. starting to lean into to criticizing. So I really have to be like very intentional about speaking to myself and saying, Ron, right. you just need to listen yep. to this, right? And allow God to speak to you. Uh, otherwise I just slip into this um, critiquing mode. Um, and I'm, I'm my own worst critic, of course, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I have a lot so, of times yeah. in the, in the singing portion of the service where I just feel that the spirit whispers to me, or maybe it's my own spirit just awakening me, but it's like, Hey, uh, God's here in this moment. You can fellowship with the Lord. You can, you can worship <laughs> right. God yeah. too while yeah. you think yeah. about all these other pieces, you know, and it, yeah. it's important to, to lean that direction. Yeah. yeah. So I, I hope our, our listeners are able to do that in their own ministry context as well. Yeah. Well, we've been uh, receiving some positive feedback from listeners just in the last couple of weeks. I've got some great emails. Uh, I haven't forwarded them all to you guys yet, but I'm going to I'm going to pass them cool. on. So I just want to uh, thank our listeners for that feedback. We certainly do covet it. And uh, uh, just also some suggestions on some guests uh, that we could have on the show here. So that's really helpful. So if if uh, people want to um, send us information, do you guys know the email address that they send it to to get it to us? I do not. I also Still? do not. Oh, Why don't you tell us, Rob? <laughs> Let me tell you. It's podcast at briarcrest.ca. Really, okay. really easy. Yeah, simple. So uh, thanks for sending that in and, and keep on doing it, guys, because uh, we want to grow together with you. Uh, well, this week we have Robin Waller on the show, and he's the lead pastor of Lift Church in the Toronto-Hamilton area. 
uh, and this is 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 very fascinating uh, what the the work that they're doing out there. So it's a it's a missional disciple making multi site movement of churches on university campuses, mm-hmm. and it's been going for for quite some time, like for over a decade. So. It's a really unique model. It's a really fascinating story. So, um, yeah, looking forward to listening to that interview this week. Well, I'm listening to myself in the interview this week. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I hope you guys can lean into that. So, hey, thanks, Dan. And thanks, Jeff, for joining us this morning. And uh, we will see you all next week. Sounds good. Well, hey, Robin Waller, thank you for joining us with the Church in the North podcast. It's great to have you here uh, with us. And of course, we've spent some time together already chatting a little bit about the show today. Uh, For our listeners that don't know uh, Robin, he is the lead pastor of Lyft Church. Uh, I think, would we say the Hamilton region of Canada? Is that kind of it? But uh, you're all over the map. Yeah. 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 All over uh, the Toronto, Hamilton area. Awesome. Well, why don't we get get right into it? Robin, why don't you tell us a little bit about the church you lead, Lift Church? Uh, what is it? Um, and maybe give us a little bit of background on your, your guys' story, how you got into it. Yeah, so uh, Lift Church, we basically very simply exist to uh, see people know Jesus and be made alive in uh, the goodness that he offers us but specifically by being the church on every campus. And so we have a dream to plant a a church, a thriving church on every university campus. And um, yeah, it's been quite a ride. We've been at it for 17 years now. Wow. And um, But kind of rebooted uh, about 10 years ago. My wife and I were part of a uh, really a restart, and I'm sure we'll get into that story for parts of it. But um, yeah, about eight years ago, we started planting churches and uh, reproducing, and over the last number of years, have planted, I think we're on to seven, seven churches now, wow. uh, seven different locations, um, and lots of university students, but lots of also not university students, pretty diverse community, um, and uh, yeah. Okay, well, so let's take us take us back to the beginning a little bit. Um, what did Lift Church exist before you, or were you the founder? And uh, if you were, like, how did how did you where did the idea come from? How did it get started? Yeah, so kind of a crazy story. I uh, I joined our church as a first year engineering student right before day one. Um, it was a, a church plant, kind of just in concept at the time, and. Uh, I was searching for a church. I really felt like we needed a church on the university campus. And so um, from my side, I prayed a prayer. This is way back in 2006. I said, Lord, either um, you can bring me a church on campus. I don't exactly know what I had in mind when I prayed that. Uh, Or I threatened the Lord. I said, uh, which I highly recommend. Ah. Uh, (laughs) And I said, uh, you know, uh, or I'll just start one here in my dorm room. And uh, I guess the Lord just felt like that was a really bad idea. And three days later, I got a call from a guy who said he was starting a church on the university mm-hmm. campus. And, um, you know, when we started, we uh, we started as a fairly uh, sort of ordinary looking um, church. At that time in the mid 2000s, there were quite a few churches on university campuses. Okay. The, the format was kind of established um, and we, we didn't do anything super innovative. Um but we did we did manage to reach some people, and uh, but we really started to run into challenges about year three or four. University students obviously don't have any money. I didn't have any money. I was still a university student, and uh, sustaining a traditional 
funding model for a church plant really wasn't working for us. And, uh, and so out of that, um, the person who, who started it, he moved on uh, to take on uh, a, a sort of a traditional family church, a large church in the area. And we, uh, we kind of were just wandering the wilderness for a little while, mm. trying to figure out who are we, what are we doing. Um, I started my career as a software engineer in that time, met my, my wife and I got married. And uh, yeah, and so we, we had the opportunity to take on the leadership back in 2012. The church had kind of dwindled to about 20, 25 people. And um, my wife and I sort of just said, well, I guess we'll lead it. <laughs> um, and we, we said, you know, we don't, need, we don't need to be paid. We don't need a traditional uh, role. We'll just, if you just give us space to lead, we'll, we'll do it. And um, wow, it was amazing. So, so did yeah. you have any like theological or discipleship training back then? I mean, what, what, was, what, was, your, what was your background? I mean, you're obviously a software engineer. Uh, they're not teaching you uh, the book of Romans. So what? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and my wife's a publicist, so okay. uh, you know she wasn't learning the Book of Romans either. Um, and so, you know, yeah, we you know we didn't have any formal training. Um, in, you know, we hadn't gone to seminary, uh, still haven't gone to seminary uh, or Bible college, uh, but we had experienced um, both my wife and I uh, the power of life on life discipleship. Mm. Um, and the incredible fruit that can happen when somebody invests in somebody else. And so I was very blessed through my teenage years to have some great disciplers in my life. Mm. Um, you know, I had this this youth pastor, actually, um, who was the least cool youth pastor ever. Uh, she would say that, you know, she was, she was older um, and, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't set up in, to run the traditional youth ministry. But out of that, she understood that what she could do was she could equip us um, to lead. And so she took a back seat and let us take kind of a front seat. And out of that, um, just taught us to lead, taught us to, to teach scripture, taught us to communicate scripture mm -hmm. publicly. Uh, really great. Like the leadership work that she did in my life was, was really quite phenomenal. Her name was Christoski. And, um, and so out of that came into our church at McMaster's the first year and our original uh, founding pastor, Dave Slater, uh, he took me under his wing. He taught me, discipled me, invested into me. Um, and so what we didn't, what we lacked in formal training, we had received in what I think is the biblical model for raising leaders, which is life on life discipleship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. And don't um, you value those youth pastors, uh, no matter what they, yeah. what they're like. When, <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, so let's jump ahead again to where you're at with uh, with your with your church plant, and uh, you guys trying to find your way there. Uh, what happened next? Yeah. So, so 2012, uh, we we took over, and my wife and I knew that you know we were working full time, um, and we had no plans to change that. And so we just said, you know, let's just let's just try to be really clear on who we are and where we're going. Um, just really believing in the power of a clear vision. Uh, and so we we clarified. We said, look, we're we're just a church, and we're a church that's committed to the university campus. And um, that helped people because there was a real sense of we don't know who we are. And it's very hard for people to invest in something when there isn't clear direction or right. clear vision, clear values. 
And so that meant we were also clear on what we were not. We were not going to look like a traditional family church. Um, and we felt like that was okay. Right. And then we sat any, or, 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 sat people down and we just started to dream together, pray together and say, Lord, what, what could we do? And it was incredible. Like it, it just exploded. Um, yeah. Between 2012 and 2014, went from 25 people into many, many hundreds coming out on Sundays and in small groups. We called them simple churches, still do. And uh, we went from having uh, like a tiny church to having a relatively large church in the span of, you know, just two years. And um, those were really fun, fun, vibrant years for us. Now, was that just at one campus or had you gone to more than one campus at the time? No, the uh, at that time, uh, we were just at McMaster. Um, and uh, we were just grateful to be alive uh, in some senses. But we started to way back in 2008. So before any of this had happened, um, I had quite a clear, uh, clear picture, you could might call it a vision in my mind of a, of a dandelion blowing in the wind. Um, and the seeds sort of being scattered, uh, and understood that to be a sort of a call to, to, to become a church planting church. Um, and so we had tucked that away, uh, and about seven years later started to feel that, that birth within us, uh, again. And so in 2015, we stepped out to plant, uh, our second campus, uh, at Brock university. Okay. Uh, basically copying the model um, that had helped us uh, gain some, some success at McMaster. Um, and uh, that began our journey uh, towards church planting uh, and reproducing. Yeah. The, you know, they say the second campus is often the, the biggest challenge. And once you figure out a lot of things there, then it's much more easy to multiply campuses after that. Uh, did you guys face any uh, specific challenges going to a second campus? Oh man, it was brutal. Okay. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was the steepest learning curve. So we were we we were, I was still working full time uh, as an engineer. I was commuting and wow. Um, uh, so was my wife uh, in, in her career downtown Toronto, and uh, we we basically tried to grow on the back of of a fairly attractional style of of church. Okay. Good preaching, good music. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we, we knew that it, it's not hard to gather, uh, young adults in a room if your music's good and your teaching's good, like they'll show up or at least they, they did then. I think things have changed a little bit now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we learned uh, some pretty painful lessons that, that at the end of the day, it's the vision and values that hold us together, not the, the format of what we do. And uh, we discovered that we couldn't export our leadership. Um, we had a real leadership challenge. Mm. Um, although we could find competent people, like some really talented people to provide uh, direction and leadership, um, because we hadn't raised them in our own context yeah. to yeah. carry and, and value what we valued, when we tried to send them, maintaining cohesion was impossible. Yeah. Um, and so that was the first key learning that was just quite quite painful because those are some some really good friends, um, and uh, and and it didn't work unfortunately. So, so they began with you, but you sent them out. But then as they got there, there was there was sort of a mission drift once they arrived. Um, no, the, they they didn't begin with us. Okay, so um, they were never with you yeah. in the movement. Okay. 
yeah, so they weren't they weren't sort of one of us. Yeah. Um, they were friends from from outside, nice. uh, really dear friends, um, and uh, but had and and loved the Lord, but had some slightly different priorities, ways of seeing things, ways of seeing church than than my wife and I did, and and so that alignment started to create some challenges in the long run. Yeah. Um, but the bigger issue was, was that we realized pretty quickly that, that we were really blessed with, with exceptional talent, uh, at McMaster, um, in terms of, uh, leadership capabilities, uh, music capabilities, teaching capabilities, organizational capabilities. And we, we learned that we, there was no chance to, raise up enough leaders to be able to reproduce the number of churches that the Lord was putting on our heart if our model required superstars. Right. And at yeah. that time, our model required superstars, um, unicorns. Like, you know, uh, if somebody's talent, like super talented, it's amazing what they can achieve. Um, but, you know, that was like one in a thousand for us. Yeah. Um, and we needed like dozens and dozens and dozens or like we felt like that's what we needed. So we started to really look at uh, our model from a leadership development standpoint and say, Hey, actually the way we're thinking is too leadership heavy. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. It's too slow to scale to the level where we can actually plant a church on every campus. Uh, and so we started to reimagine things. Okay. Um, this would be back in 2018 probably. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got a challenge then with replicating your DNA, which is hard. If somebody's never experienced church as you know it and, and the culture of your local church and trying to replicate that because uh, people do what they want to do or what they know, right? So if they've never been there yeah. and then you have a, a leadership replication problem or a, a, um, a polity or, or ministry style replication problem, you need that talent to do it, to pull it off. So what did you guys do? Did you, did you, did you dumb it down? Did you lower the expectations? Did you do a radical do-over? Yeah, so we, um, I'd say we had a real come to Jesus moment. Yeah. Um, I think what had happened was that we grew so quickly um, that some of the core values um, that were super important to, to me personally, but also I think super key to what the Lord did in our church, had gotten lost along the way, mm. um, particularly. Uh, this really core value of the priesthood of all believers um, that, that we wanted to see all believers equipped and sent into the mission field. Um, And a subtle um, distinction between the called and the not quite as called uh, started to, to creep into our thinking. Um, And, and when we started to realize that I was, I was pretty shocked. I felt like, wow, this is not, this is not at all what, what was in my heart uh, or what I felt the Lord had called us to be back in when we started leading in 2012. But five years and a whole lot of success and, and uh, scrambling really to, to, to lead things, we had kind of lost our way hmm. um, on that core value. And so we started to ask the question, how could we plant churches um, in a way more scalable, uh, way more reproducible way? that was rooted in, uh, the priesthood of all believers. And I actually had a, a, quite a powerful conversation. I met, um, a church planting organization randomly went out for lunch with their leaders. And, uh, every now and again, the Lord, I guess, just puts people in your life that say the right thing in the right moment. And, um, 
this woman who I, I met and was just hearing our story just looked at me and she said, it sounds like you've just become really cynical. Hmm. Um, and specifically what I was cynical about was, uh, the idea that, uh, that we could call Christians to actually be obedient to the great commission, um, and expect, like actually expect a church to respond to that call. Like, I think there had been a cynicism that maybe they won't, maybe the called will, but not everybody will. And so out of that, we started to, uh, to rethink and restructure around, okay, instead of raising superstars and planting attractional churches, what if we planted churches uh, where we took our small group leaders, our house church leaders, and uh, equipped and mobilized them to be the planters? And we, uh, instead of paying them, we asked them to get professional jobs in whatever city. And uh, instead of planting by attracting lots of Christians, we started with just evangelism, um, good old fashioned sharing of the gospel. Uh, and we realized that we were actually pretty good at that. Um, and that that was something we knew how to raise. We didn't really know how to raise the unicorn leaders, but we knew how to raise competent house church leaders. Um, and we knew how to do uh, sort of relational evangelism, um, and we knew how to scale it, uh, like we were, because we were already doing all of that. So, were you still in your second campus by this point, or were you moved on to other campuses uh, launched? No, by this time we were on our fourth campus. Okay, okay, uh, yeah, yeah. So we planted a few more, and so the other um, campuses kind of get planted in more of the classic church planning model, which is like Sunday is everything, and and you got to get the band and the teaching in place, and then from there you build your your other ministries kind of around that. Is that how they went launched or? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Okay, yeah. Um, so this would have and, been a real paradigm shift for your church to say, okay, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to um, actually go small and move towards, um, you know, missional discipling leaders launching smaller movements first. Uh, is that is that correct? Is that a good assessment? Or oh yeah, yeah, it was um, it was like a one eighty uh, in some ways. Uh, certainly, many people perceived it as a one eighty. Yeah. Um, uh, I think from my perspective, I felt like it was a uh, a returning to who we always were. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but we got lost. Yeah. But yeah, there was definitely uh, it was you know it was, it was not universally well received or even well understood. Um, and uh, yeah, those were uh, probably the most challenging challenging years of my life. Never mind just my leadership. Okay. Um, talk, talk a little bit navigating more navigating and steering that. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, as I've as I've touched on. Uh, there was a lot of, of really precious relationships uh, that we had called to come kind of labor with us, um, both from within uh, and outside the church. But as we started to figure out who we really were and what we really wanted to do, um, a lot of those relationships weren't weren't aligned. Mm. Um, and uh, I was a young leader, and uh, I'm, I mean, I'm still not very old, but at that time, I, I definitely had some deficiencies in my my leadership style. Um, and so I made mistakes, uh, but I think at the core of it, there was a, a perception of, uh, not everybody wanted to go where we were going. Yeah. Uh, there was, um, and, and you know, it got thrown out in all kinds of crazy ways. I had team members calling our staff, telling them that I was out of my mind and they should quit their jobs. They were wasting their life. Oh, wow. And these were like these, I had a team member threatened to sue us because we shut down 
one of their ministries uh, so that we could refocus on evangelism. I, I mean, it was ugly. It was really ugly. Uh, about, I would say, half the church left. Um, mm. Wow. And several hundred thousand dollars of funding walked out the door. Um, At all your campuses or, or just your main campus? Everywhere across okay. the board. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, once once young adults start talking to each other, the, the sort of the – it spreads, right? Um, and uh, it was in the middle of that. I was still working full-time as an engineer. And it was in the middle of all of that that I felt the Lord say, now's the time to jump uh, jump and, and commit full-time to, to leading our church. Um, and uh, I was like, really, Lord? Like now? Like the thing's on fire. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm so glad – you know, that, that we did. And although it was incredibly challenging, um, some of the most precious relationships came out of that. Some of the deepest friendships that we now have came out of that, out of that battle together. Um, and kind of learned who is truly, truly with us. Um, and, um, not to say that everybody that, that parted ways, many of them, uh, are now, still serving the Lord and joined other church plants and have gone on to great things. But what grieves me is many of them didn't land anywhere. Mm. Um, and they took their grievances and just left church. Okay. And th- that was, you know, that was painful yeah. um, to see, but we had a phrase that we used at the time, which was, are we being saved by the gospel or are we being saved by community? Um, and we learned that what we actually had was an endemic discipleship issue. Uh, we had a vibrant community. Uh, we had a vibrant sort of gathering of people. Um, but that did not mean that we were actually making um, real disciples of Jesus. Um, and what basically happened was we said, guys, we're not going to – we're not here to entertain. Uh, we're not here to create the best show. We, we really want to – we want to raise disciples that are all in for the kingdom uh, and willing to give their lives for for Jesus, and so really, we exposed our own issue. <laughs> right? Would, would you uh, our own I mean, would you even say like did you exposed your own idolatry? I mean that the challenge in in ministry is your your ministry or your form of ministry or your community itself, your church itself, does get elevated above the gospel and Jesus. And um, when that's taken away, you know, as Calvin would say, I mean, it's like smoke rising from the idols, you know, from the altars of our idolatry. Right? You you your reaction to when it gets taken away exposes something about yourself and about what you truly value. You, you know what I'm saying? So a hundred, hundred percent. Um, so often, uh, what we value in church, uh, are, are basically just idols. Yeah. Um, and we, we were touching all the most sacred ones, uh, worship team, uh, women's ministry, uh, men's ministry, um, fun events. Uh, and then we were replacing it with a call to go and actually tell people about Jesus. Right. Uh, like, Hey, like instead of running this event, uh, we're instead going to ask you guys to go tell people the gospel. Uh, so instead of having a whole lot of fun and calling it church, uh, let's go, you know, share the gospel with a stranger. And, oh man, that, that that's like a truth serum, uh, and so yeah, yeah, um, it was it was pretty powerful. But as painful as it was, I would do it again 
um, 10 times over. Yeah. Uh, the fruit that it's born and the joy that we've had and uh, this, the what the Lord has been able to do in our church in the years since has been uh, truly incredible. Yeah. Well, let's put a pin in it for a minute of, of the, that point in your timeline. But let, let's talk a little bit about your core DNA. Um, you have some core values that are, are part of your DNA. And uh, you break it down into a phrase, everyone's sent to multiply everything. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, around that, that whole tumultuous time, that phrase became the the anchoring value statement about who we were going to be. Um, and really it's four ideas packaged into a phrase. Okay. So, uh, I'll kind of break it down. So everyone's sent to multiply everything. The first word is, is everyone. And, uh, I've alluded to this already, but we had a r- real strong conviction of the priesthood of all believers, yeah. um, that, that, that what God was creating in the church was a nation of priests, uh, and that our job as a church and, uh, especially our job as leaders in the church was to equip those priests, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, as it says in Ephesians. And so that meant that we needed to to have a this central value that everyone was called to ministry yeah. and to mission and to kingdom work, and that there was no divide between the the sort of the more called and the not quite so called, um, and. Uh, that I was a complete, like I was just an ordinary follower of Jesus. I might be leading the church. I might have a greater mantle of responsibility, but there was no core theological difference in, in my calling to anyone else in our church's calling. We're called to be a part of the kingdom, fulfill the great commission to the work of the ministry. And so we wanted to, to really, um, root into this idea of, of everyone. Yeah. The second, the second piece if you want to, if you want to jump in, you can interrupt me too. I can just yeah, yeah, I yeah. Oh, wow. day, I mean, there's so. so much we could talk about, but let's get through all four, and then we can uh, wheel back if we need to. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So sent um, the uh, you know, we realized that there's there's two core impulses uh, in the church uh, that are sort of working at odds or two forces. We have a, a, a gathering force, and then there's the sending yeah. force. Um, there's this, uh, there's this incarnating of the gospel that's going in this being amongst a people. And then there's the, the sending of the gospel, uh, to go and be amongst other people. There's the, the sharing a meal together. And then there's the going, the feeding the person yeah. you don't know. And so we started to, to reflect on this, this duality of forces that were in, at play in the church. And we realized that, that it was the sending force that was the hardest to keep in focus. Um, you know, our people didn't need a lot of encouragement to gather together. They were happy to gather together. Um, and the years since we've learned that actually the kind of gathering that we're called to is, is much more challenging, uh, yeah. as we started to study acts two and, and that sort of thing. But, but it was the sending that was really missing. And so we started to say, okay, our, our church is not just going to exist to gather, but rather to send. And that, when we say send, we mean send to plant new churches. Right. And so our whole church ecosystem is built around raising everyone to be a disciple maker that can be sent to make more disciple makers. Um, and so we're as passionate about where we're not as a, about where we already are. And so there's this sending aspect. Yeah. Um, 
And then uh, the, mul- the multiply piece uh, is huge. You know, multiplication has become a bit of a trendy in uh, trendy subject in the last sure. four or five years yeah. in the church. Um, it's like the holy grail that everybody's trying to find, but at least in the West, we haven't quite cracked. Um, but the core idea of multiplication was that we weren't going to build our strategy on the talents of the few, but the gifts of everyone. Um, and so the question wasn't how do we uh, build a large, you know, centralized system, but how could we rather create something that's easy to reproduce, uh, where leaders are training leaders who are training leaders, uh, and it's highly decentralized. And so decentralization, uh, reproduction, the raising and the sending of leaders became a core, uh, a core component. And then the word everything there uh, is just pointing to the fact that it's not just um, the visible pieces of the ministry that we need to multiply, but it's across everything. Hmm. Um, we need to multiply people who can make great meals and open their homes. We need to multiply, uh, uh, you know, worship leaders, and we need to multiply right. great, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, people that can preach and teach. Like that, it's the gifts of the body. Everything needs to be multiplied, right. um, not just uh, a few core skills. And so. Even right now in our church, we're sitting down with all of our team leaders and reminding them that their job as a team leader uh, of any team is to raise more team leaders so that we can send them to join church plants. Yeah. Um, and so whether that means uh, like we're sitting at I, I sat one of our guys down that runs our setup team. I had him out for coffee last week for one of our campuses. You know, just a, vol- a student, a third year student, volunteer, and I said, "Hey, man." Um, your job is to train a generation of people that know how to create space that is welcoming to people. Your job is to raise leaders so that we can send them. I said, one of our biggest challenges is we, we don't have enough people that know how to create welcoming spaces. And so you got to help us raise more leaders that can create more welcoming spaces. Mm. Uh, and he looked at me and he was like, it's like I had a, you know, his, his sense of possibility went from really, really quite small to he started to see how impactful his role actually was in the broader kingdom. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's that Ephesians so. paradigm, right? That, that God, Jesus had called some to be apostles, prophets, and, you know, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to prepare the people of God for works of service, not just to do uh, the works of service. And I think that that trickles down to all roles within the body of Christ is we're all not just doers, but we're all equippers and we're, we're trying to multiply everything everywhere. Um, exactly. Let's go back to that scent paradigm. I mean, I mean that's a you're 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 pushing against a, a pretty strong tidal wave of uh, church ethos, which is very attractional, right? The idea of attraction, attraction, attraction. Um, you know, and inviting people to, you know, invite somebody to church is that common phrase, which I mean has all sorts of implications for bad ecclesiology because um, the church isn't an <laughs> yeah, event. Sure. But I mean, I mean that's that's going to be pretty hard for for people to uh, get their heads around that we are the sent people of God, called by God on mission into the world. I mean, what, what are some of the things that you did to to help? kind of do the switch on that on that uh understanding um to move from attractional to extractional extracting the people of god into the world um did you guys have any specific tactics you use or strategies or um maybe just teaching or what Uh, yeah a little bit of everything um i think in a way it starts by clarifying what people understand the gospel to be okay um 
And so, so much uh, of this actually goes back to how, how do we understand and relate to the gospel? Um, the core of the gospel is sending. The Father sends the Son. Yeah. Um, and he sends the Son into a world that is not exactly eager to receive him. Um, and so often we think about the gospel in essentially individualistic uh terms that it you know what has christ done uh you know to save me but there isn't a sense of of seeing ourselves as participatory in the work of salvation the work of bringing the good news bringing the gospel to the nations yeah uh to continue doing what jesus did for us not not that we are those who save obviously you know it, it's jesus who saves but we're called to be ambassadors messengers uh continuing to to function as a sent people just as the father sent the son yeah and so it goes back i think to how we understand the gospel um but then uh culturally in our church it's just become like what what you celebrate you replicate yeah uh and so we deplatformed quite a few people um we stopped celebrating the platform mm -hmm. and we started celebrating the sending and so uh, the people who are the most celebrated in our church are those that have done and given the greatest sacrifice to be sent and put up their hands and to say, you know, I will go. Um, and we've, we've got a lot of pretty crazy stories where, you know, uh, you'll have, we have, we have one guy in our church who felt called to, to go plant a church in Mississauga and, uh, uh, you know, no diss to Mississauga, no disrespect to Mississauga, but it's not the most exciting place in the world. Okay. Yeah. And, and, um, and he just said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go. He had no job. He didn't know how he was going to do it, but he's like, the Lord has sent me. So he, he moved out there and, and, uh, for a year worked to, uh, tell people the, the gospel, uh, mostly Muslim students mm. at the, uh, university of Toronto, Mississauga campus. Yeah. And just trusted the Lord to bring him a job. And, uh, you know, fast forward two years and the Lord's good. He's working as an engineer. He managed to find a wife and get married. Another leader from our church. Right, he's multiplying. They're little, he's, mul he's multiplying. <laughs> you know, their church is, their little plant is, is blossoming. Yeah. Uh, and so we've, you know, we celebrate him. Um, and so celebration has been a, a really important aspect of it. So, yeah, there's a, a theological dimension, yeah. but I think that there's a cultural dimension. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we try our hardest to every every meeting anywhere in the church uh, starts with celebrations of discipleship multiplication of sending yeah um, and so I, I, yeah. I, we always found in our in our church the, the one that we planted um, about a dozen years ago in Edmonton uh, cross point it's very missional DNA but uh, the challenge of social media is um, you know, it's very picture driven. Uh, so for example, Instagram, uh, and, and it's, it's really easy to find pictures of Sunday morning and it's really easy yeah. to find pictures of large, large events. Um, but you can't really find pictures of those missional moments because in many ways you feel like you're violating a personal barrier or relationship, right? And so you're not going to post those pictures. And so the, but the adage, you know, uh, I think it's Stanley, Andy Stanley's like what gets celebrated gets repeated, right? Which, which you've uh, just stated, um, you celebrate those things and then people start thinking, Oh, church is a Sunday morning experience. But, um, you know, did you face any unique challenges with that? I mean, like with what, how, how you post and how you talk about things publicly. Yeah, we actually, um, at, at some point, I don't remember when we, we, 
we passed a rule that we were not going to post photos of Sundays. Yeah. Um, and we had, we, you know, at that time, less now, uh, post COVID, but especially a couple of years, our Sundays were bumping. Like we, you know, the whole shebang, the lights, the music, the fog machines, yeah. like the, you know, the whole thing. Um, and we just said, we will not post photos of that. Um, and it decimated our social media. <laughs> yeah, uh, <for> sure. <laughs> and, um, and you know what? So what? Uh, the people who we were finding on social media, like if it, what you win people with, you win them too. Yeah. Um, and so the idea that, well, we'll just, I used to think I oh, will get them in the door and then we'll reprogram them. Yeah. Um, it's, but, it's tough. but it, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Um, and so instead we just said, okay, we're going to become the masters of the meal, okay. uh, of, of great, great meals. Hospitality. And so our church uh, and hospitality. Yeah. So our church eats together, well, I don't know, dozens of times a week. Uh, across the church. Um, how, uh, do, like how do you do that with college format. students? Is everyone bringing mac and cheese or um, you got some great hosts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we, um, uh, we've just, I, I don't know, created this, this, this value of we, we eat well together. Um, we have um, a group of, of Quite a few people we call missionaries who are, are non-students. They've graduated. They've committed to being a part of our church. Um, they have jobs, doctors, engineers, okay. nurses, okay. Yeah. Uh, those sorts of things. And uh, and they, they cook a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, sometimes I joke that we should uh, – we could keep uh, – uh, we could keep thermos brand in business because we we buy so much thermos product, keeping right. you know various meals hot as we we transport it. But uh, the the it's taken a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and but the upshot is that you know that is stuff we can photograph and we can get that out there. And um, but it has been it has been challenging. Like how do you how do you communicate and attract? But I think what it actually points to is a deeper problem. Yeah. Um, and the deeper problem is that the core of the church, if we want to grow our churches, the core strategy needs to be life on life evangelism, yeah. uh, not so much advertising. Um, if people are actually doing evangelism, and I don't mean just like I shared my, shared the gospel with my coworker. I mean like going out and intentionally finding people to tell the gospel yeah. to, uh, in, in a, in a targeted and strategic way. If we're not doing that, all we're going to reach with our advertising likely are Christians or dechurched people. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and and demographically, Canada is uh, in twenty years will not predominantly be Christian or dechurched. It will be no church That's experience. Right. Exactly. And I don't think that they relate to our marketing campaigns on social media or our attractional style. And so, what they do relate to is meals and invitation yeah. to life and. Uh, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Um, that's right. And, you know, and I think that's a really good point we need to pause on for just a minute because, I mean, um, you know, if we talk about attractional versus extractional um, missional paradigms, right? The attractional is bringing people to church or bringing people to the event that we host Christmas and Easter and all of that. Um, and then extractional is extracting the people of God out on mission in the world wherever they are. Uh, whether where they eat, where they recreate, where they study, um, where they work, all of those places, where they live, their neighborhoods, right? So there's a different paradigm here. Um, but the de-churched and if we could say unchurched, um, you know, just the kind of the classic breakdown, de-churched are those who have a Christian memory, uh, 
Um, you know, either they've had church in their life at some point, or they have family members who have been part of church, you know, they've grown up a little bit. And so they have some, some common understanding of, of church, some, some sort of memory or experience. And then the unchurched are those who have none, like there's, it's not even part of their world or their framework. And as emerging generations move along, the number of de-churched in the country continues to decrease and the number of unchurched continues to increase. But if our model is attractional all the time, the people that we're trying to reach continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And there's this whole huge percentage of the population that are unchurched that will never darken any event that you invite them to. Um, Unless it's something that's, like you're saying, has has food or people are engaging and rubbing shoulders with them one-on-one in relationship. Um, Is that kind of a, a good breakdown of what we're talking about here with your model? Yeah, I think that that's bang on. And and to give you sort of some some of our own experiences with that, in the early days, I think a big portion of our growth was from de-churched okay. uh, students. Yeah. Um, and around, uh, in parallel to all of the learnings that I've alluded to, we started to notice a decrease in the number of people that were responding to gospel invitations in our large format services. Yeah. Um, Ten years ago, I could preach just about any message and do a call for salvation and have a dozen hands uh, respond. But by 2017, 2018, we noticed that no one was responding. Hmm. Uh, And I was like, either, either I'm the problem uh, or, or I don't know what, but when we started to realize uh, we realized pretty quickly that no, the issue was that our demographics have changed. Hmm. Um, And post COVID uh, what we've seen is that the number of D church students, uh, and I would say it's not just students. Students are just a, a reflection of the broader yeah. culture yeah. and sort of a snapshot in time. Uh, the number of de-churched has radically decreased and the number of unchurched is is through the roof. Yeah. And so, uh, and I think it can be misleading because there are across the country, a lot of large mega churches or attractional style churches that are growing and doing relatively well. Um, but I think that it, it betrays the truth on the ground, which is that the church in Canada is probably not, it is not growing yeah. as a whole. Our net reach year over year is not growing, despite the fact that the really good attractional churches are growing. Um, but how and are I they think growing? what that points, I, I think it points to a, a reality that they're probably growing off transfer growth. Yeah. Um, and uh, what, what we've really tried to to do uh, is say, Lord, like we got to raise a people, a generation of Christians that are passionate about um, about the work of evangelism, about the work of disciple making, and that the church is probably the church in the future of Canada. While there will probably be uh, still a large number of large uh, sort of attractional style, high quality churches, the dominant form of church in the future in Canada, I think is going to look a lot more like the book of Acts, hmm. uh, house to house evangelism rooted, um, uh, deprofessionalized, uh, clergy. And, and, and so we've tried to ask the question, what would it look like if we, if we looked more like the church in Acts, um, not just from a utopian standpoint, but from a, from a missiological standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, what are some of the challenges you face? I mean, you're, you're taking an 18 year old fresh out of, you know, a, a common church experience, maybe, or or um, or some sort of a Christian memory, or maybe not. Maybe they don't have any, but but they're very young, and 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 your goal is to help 
turn them into a reproducing disciple who's willing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, I got to expect that you're facing some similar challenges uh, on all of your campuses. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's not easy. Um, and when I talk to my peers that work uh, in, in campus church planting across North America, we're all, the reality is that we're all having a tough time. Mm. Uh, we're all having to work pretty hard. And, um, and some of our old strategies and our old models maybe aren't working as well as they used to. Yeah. Um, some of the, the specific challenges uh, relate to a lot of incoming students have adopted Christians. A lot of incoming Christian students have adopted a, uh, an understanding of the gospel that is, I think, fairly myopic or borderline idolatrous where their understanding of the gospel is uh, is basically that salvation equates to uh, personal self discovery. Okay, and so deprogramming that and teaching them that actually no, the gospel is about uh, learning to walk with Jesus as King as every dimension of your life is like a pretty oh, radical yeah. idea, yeah. Um, and and can be hard for people to to wrap their heads around. So we do a lot of work trying to. Uh, to address that. The other piece that is quite challenging is that, um, and, but also a, a tremendous opportunity is that the subject of identity, um, is probably the number one conversation that we're having on a, on a day-to-day basis with, right. with our students. Uh, who, who am I? Um, and the good news is the gospel has a lot to say about who you are, uh, in Christ. And there's a really, uh, a, a incredible message of hope and good news there. The challenge is that students have, in many cases, adopted a false identity. Um, it might be the identity uh, as a victim. Okay. Uh, that yeah. is certainly a prevalent identity. I'm a victim. I'm a, I'm a subject of my, uh, you know, I'm just a product of my circumstances. Yeah. And as a result, many of them believe they don't have any agency. Um, uh, for example, we've observed that a lot of the conversation around mental health has actually been net negative uh, for students. Um, as we've dr- driven mental health conversations to the forefront culturally, many students believe that they're just trapped now in their identity as somebody who has a mood disorder or what right. have you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so trying to disentangle their self-perception from perhaps the challenges of their life can be really difficult. Um, and there's a fragility that comes with that, um, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of far smarter people than me have written a, a fair bit about that that subject. Um, and then, of course, there's the identity rooted in, in sexuality and yeah. uh, and gender identity. And man, that is that is a quagmire that we have to carefully and wisely navigate every day. Yeah. Um, but it's also a tremendous opportunity because the gospel, again, speaks so beautifully and profoundly to the subjects of sexuality and gender identity. Yeah. Um, and so I think in a way what's, what's happening is that the world is starting to speak really clearly in a way that is anti-gospel uh, to a lot of these core subjects in a really loud way. But it's also being found out that the world's solutions don't really work and I think the gospel really truly does offer freedom. And so where there's challenge, there's opportunity. Yeah. 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 I think you're right on that last point. I mean, that, um, 
you know, Christian Smith in his, in his work, and he talks about moralistic therapeutic deism, um, you know, and which is your root of, you know, you kind of alluding to in your for, first point there is, is this, um, you know, this, this gospel of, of, um, of self-promotion in, in, in many ways and, and finding the best, you know, creating the best version of yourself. That, that one is a little bit more insidious, right? And it attaches itself totally. to the gospel and it, and it kind of runs underground and you don't see it. Whereas what we're seeing now is the new paradigm of identity and whatnot is, is, is so blatantly antithetical to the gospel, right? And, um, and it's, it's much more easily to identify. However, I mean, it's also more antagonistic to the gospel. And so you're dealing with something very different, which is, I mean, if we talk about identity and we talk about the new identity in Christ, um, you can get a lot more pushback on that. Um, whereas the other one, you kind of have to peel back the layers and, and say, okay, well, here's, here's why moralistic therapeutic deism, the Oprahfied gospel, if we talk about that, you know, is so much different than the gospel where Jesus calls us to come and surrender our lives to him fully and die to self and, and receive him and, and make him king over our lives rather than our own selves. So anyway, th- th- those are, those are some real challenges you guys are facing. Um, so much, uh, we, wow, we could talk about so much there, but, uh, we're, I, w- I want to make the best use of our time here. Um, let's get onto the, the timeline again. Okay. I, I remember I interviewed you for my doctoral dissertation way back in 2018. Um, and a lot has happened since then. Um, so you started sh- shifting towards a d- discipleship making movement, a DMM strategy. Um, and you've kind of told us a little bit about the shift, but I mean, can you tell us a little bit what's, what's happened since then? And, um, and maybe even. And just talk about uh, what are the things that you're celebrating uh, about the shift? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I've alluded to a lot of of 2018. We made some big changes, but we actually made the biggest change in 2020, right before COVID. Yeah, Um, It was really the the end of of several years of discovery and learning and experimentation. And what we did was we, we basically officially moved from, uh, we were kind of running a hybrid. We had these uh, bivocational or professional uh, people that were starting new house churches in different cities. And then we had our old attractional style churches. And we basically led by professional clergy, as, as it were. And we basically moved all of our old uh, clergy-led uh, church plants to uh, bivocational-led church plants. Okay. And we transitioned that whole team wow. uh, into different roles. Yeah. Um, and in one shot, we basically re- like reoriented a leadership structure where uh, we placed, I think it was something like nine directors of regions of house churches hmm. all at once right before COVID. And I'm so grateful we did that because essentially what it did is it set us up to run a decentralized house church network um, led by a bivocational team and then COVID happened mm-hmm. <laughs> and we could like, we couldn't have been better positioned. Wow. Um, yeah. And there were some challenges because making a big change like that and being unable to navigate those, some of the questions people had over coffee or in person meant that uh, there was some relational uh fallout that that did happen but overall it was incredible mm. uh and what it did is it it changed the perception of uh what it means to be a church planter instead of a church planter being somebody that was highly skilled professional maybe had a, a really comprehensive gift mix 
it meant that any of our house church leaders could theoretically be a church planter. Um, and it started with a really simple question for us. Um, we studied that we were studying the book of Acts, and in Acts eight, there's a uh, there's a little verse that completely rocked our world, um, and it says, um, "In those days, a severe persecution broke out against the believers, and uh, and they were scattered." Yeah. And then jump down to verse four, and it says, "As they were scattered, they went on their way preaching the word." Mm. And if you fast forward to Acts eleven, you find out that that group of people, some of them landed in Antioch. Yeah. And were the first people to figure out how to uh, communicate the gospel to the Gentiles. And so it was these untrained, unnamed, ordinary disciples of Jesus who were running for their lives that planted the first churches to the Gentiles. Mm. And what that did is it led to us asking a question. And the question was, if we were to take anyone in our church— that had come to know Jesus in our church, and we moved them to another city anywhere in the world, and we gave them 10 years and just left them alone for 10 years, would we come back to find a thriving church movement in that city? And that became the calibrating question around everything we did, Hmm. Um, was that what we were going to do was we were going to, to the best that we could, and by the grace of God, raise people that could answer yes to that question. Um, and people started to put up their hands to say, I'll go plant a church over there and I'll go plant a church over there. And some of them, you know, some of them didn't work. We, we, some of them shut down, but many, all but one of them are still going. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a groundswell now of people saying, I want to go plant a church. Uh, because they're looking at their peers going, well, my, my friend was an engineer. My friend's a nurse. My friend's a veterinary technician. And they're a church planter. Maybe I can plant a church too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, we have an account in the New Testament of the church plants that made it. We don't have an account of the church plants that didn't make it, right? But for sure, <laughs> I mean, they had so, there had to be some that failed, and that's that's required sure. if you're going to try and do stuff, right? Start start, start new things. You, you know, every entrepreneur, every church planter. I mean, what's the average? They fail seven times before they get it right. I mean, that's that's totally not uncommon. Um, yeah. Wow. So. Um, you got, I, I have to think, like, did COVID almost reinforce the the core paradigm that you're working with? I mean, because COVID for so many of us across the board shut down Sunday mornings. And those churches that had small groups or other forms of discipling communities seemed to do a whole lot better during COVID than those who uh, who solely relied on the Sunday morning experience. But in your case, I mean, you were... It, it's almost like COVID could have reinforced that model in your context. In in a lot of ways, um, I would you know I never want to go back to COVID, but I'm no. grateful for the opportunity that it provided for us to cement some things into our DNA. Yeah. Um, I think that the changes that we were trying to make would have been very difficult in in the absence of COVID. And as a leadership team, we had been talking about how. Um, nearly impossible it would be to move our largest locations um, to think this way um, Mm. because they were so cemented in their old way of thinking. But COVID basically forced them to get on the bus um, because it just, it made the most sense to structure how we were structuring. And so coming out of COVID, that major location here in Hamilton, where I am, uh, has become our largest sending force. Um, 
and uh, the leadership out of that that location has just become absolutely incredible at raising church planters and new leaders. But it, a lot of that's because of COVID. So, because yeah. um, we just had to, we had to think as a decentralized house church movement. Um, and we're really a hybrid. Like we still have large format gatherings. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're like half house church, half not. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like Hugh Halter's and, the so, book and right. Where he talks about, uh, cause he was so tangible kingdom, strongly missional communities. Um, but he's, you know, he kind of backtracked on that and said, you know, both are really important. You still got to gather and scatter. Um, totally. Yeah. Totally. And that's it's the two forces that I was alluding to the sending and the, and the, the gathering. Yeah. Yeah. The force for togetherness and the force for sentence. That's right. Yeah. We need both. Yeah. Hey, what would you say to leaders um, who, today who are listening, who are involved in more traditional church structures? I mean, how would you encourage them? How would you challenge them towards creating disciple-making movements? Yeah, I think I, I think my biggest encouragement would be to start at the top um, and, and work down. Okay. And what I mean by that is um, – for for whoever the senior leader is to start by making sure that you're doing life on life discipleship out of your home mm. uh, and then require all of your staff and senior leaders to be doing it. Yeah. Um, elders and uh, elders yeah. uh, and your deacons yeah. and um, and then your your team leads and 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 work down. Versus I think sometimes what we do is we try to mobilize it from the bottom. We try to mobilize everyone to, to do the work of discipleship, but yeah. they're not seeing it modeled. Yeah. Um, or they're seeing exceptions. Like the the classic exception that I've seen, um, and I've worked with quite a few churches on this question over the years, is that uh, they don't want to hold their most talented, competent people to the expectation of disciple me. Well, I'm, you know, I lead the worship team and I'm doing it with the worship team or I lead the preaching team. And I'm, it's like, if you're not doing this discipleship and evangelism in your personal home, yeah, then there's a problem. Yeah, um, and so, um, and uh, and what it will do is it'll very quickly expose who's on the bus and who's not on the bus. Yeah, um, and so that's that would be my starting point. And then the other one is I think getting really clear on what is discipleship. Um, it means something different to everyone. And, uh, obviously there's a broad sense of like, okay, it means following Jesus, but what does that mean? Yeah. And I think what we've tried to do is be really clear on, this is what we mean with discipleship. We're not saying that we have the answer, but we have an answer and we're going to build our strategy off of that answer. Um, and so the, the systems and structures and, and understanding of what is discipleship uh, or go, need to be supported by a clear understanding of what is discipleship. And so we worked really, really hard to, to define an answer to that question. Yeah. Would you say, I mean, accompanying that, they need to have a clear definition of what is a disciple? Because I mean, that's yes. what you're trying to yes. replicate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think what is a disciple? What is disciple making? Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I think sometimes churches suffer from being too abstract. Yeah. Um. We, we have visions and values that are, are inspiring. We have statements about what it means to be a disciple that might be inspiring in a sense, but lacks enough clarity and definition to be useful in any kind of accountability. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and so it took me, like I, I wrote a book on discipleship yeah. and what we mean by this. It took me like a hundred thousand words to define it. Now, maybe that's a, more of an indication <laughs> of how hard it is for me to say things succinctly, but, 
um, uh, there was a lot there for us to unpack around what it what it meant to be a disciple making people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and we want to put that book in the hands of uh, of our listeners too. And uh, we're going to make sure we have links to that in the show notes. Uh, it's something that's available on Amazon, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. There's there's two books. Uh, Everyone sent to multiply everything, and uh, which is sort of a leadership book, and then Living Scent, which is a life on life discipleship book. Um, they're both available on Amazon. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah, and, and we certainly want to encourage our, our church leaders. We we know there are lots of different paradigms and ecclesiological structures that you can use um, for the church, but at the center of it all, you know, I think we want to see a disciple making movement um, move across this country because, as you say, I mean, the church has plateaued and in decline, depending on how you look at the data in in Canada, and so. Um, our, our old strategies uh, fit for a great time in in space, uh, but I mean, we need new strategies for the future going forward. Uh, Robin, and, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add that you know I, I really believe that if we make if we put disciple making at the center of our strategy, um, there's no commandment to plant churches in the New Testament, um, but there is commandments to make disciples yeah. and healthy churches. Uh, are the overflow of the work of discipleship. And so if we put disciple-making as a priority, we will have healthy churches. That That's the biblical paradigm. And so yeah. uh, I don't see a downside. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, that's a good word. Uh, well, let's leave it at that, Robin. Um, thank you so much for your time and uh, for sharing with us today. Um, some of our listeners interested in uh, knowing a little bit more about what you're doing besides the book uh, and getting involved, how can they be in touch with you? Yeah, so we can reach out through our website, liftchurch.ca. Um, I'm not really on any socials. Our church is, so you can, you can find us on, on the socials. Um, and so, yeah, liftchurch.ca, everything's there. Our books are listed there. And uh, put me an email, happy to chat, and uh, hop on a call, serve as best I can. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, hey, brother, thanks for your time. For sure, my pleasure. You've been listening to the Church of the North podcast, a production of Briarcrest College and Seminary. For more information about the podcast, visit churchinthenorth.ca. To learn more about Briarcrest, visit briarcrest.ca. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard today, please share this episode with other ministry leaders. 